0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: The word narrative is now so frequently heard that some think it overused, although perhaps its ubiquity results from it being so relevant. What used to be thought of as the mundane area of misinformation and disinformation has become one of the most powerful elements of political practice. Tell the right story, it seems, and you get your way. Andreas Krieg has written Subversion the strategic weaponization of narratives. Welcome to you. Hello. Thank you for having me. And it's it's tempting to say this is all old hat. It's been around forever, but clearly new things are happening. And you've got four words to describe the new elements of all this. And I'm just going to ask you to describe them as I give you those words. So the first one is globalized, which is pretty obvious, I guess, with social media and digitization messages spread very, very quickly everywhere.
0: Obviously, globalised means we, we live in a hyperconnected world, uh, which is network centric. It's no longer defined by the old parameters of states and uh, institutions that we've come to embrace over the last two hundred years, and it's defined by individuals who are hyperconnected across the globe without any proper boundaries, space and time, geography in particular doesn't matter anymore. And in that kind of hyperconnected world. Uh, stories, information, data changes hands quite quickly and spreads without any sort of mediation, um, and that's probably the other element of it. Which means, back in the day, we all everything was very much mediated by gatekeepers, such as the media. Uh, while now there is no gatekeeper anymore, we have algorithms that kind of put everything into perspective and kind of mediate content. But for the most part, there is no, no one who mediates. There's no gatekeepers anymore, which means everything is a free flow for everyone. everyone is as, Every individual is important as the next media company, and thereby it kind of led to a democratization of information in a way, which is a good thing, but also led to a erosion of the standards of storytelling and standards of truth production.
1: It's interesting. You assume it's a good thing, uh, and now we see the effects of it. I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure that's right, is it?
0: No. It was. It was hailed initially as a good thing uh, when social media came out. If you looked at the the late 2000s, most of the literature then would say that this democratization leads to liberation, uh, the liberation of civil society, liberation of the public sphere, particularly in authoritarian countries. People even hailed it as liberation technology because it kind of gave a voice to the voiceless. Uh, But then we realized quite quickly, 10 years on, probably, you know, around the mid 2010s that the effects of how this could be manipulated and reverse engineered by authoritarians to suppress that liberation technology, first at home, but then also exporting authoritarians, exporting what they've learned to the Western world by trying to undermine civil society and public discourse in, in, in liberal societies in the West.
1: You've dealt with the word globalised as one of your four elements of the new world we live in. Second one, privatised.
0: Privatised in a way that we, the state goes, goes back to the relationship between uh, public and private, and the, the way that the state is becoming less and less important as the holder of truth, as the main mediator, as the, you know, the boundaries of statehood and nations don't really matter anymore, And it's the private individual, the private company that has increasing power in this globalized world and has an authority that the state can no longer control because all most of the activities by individuals and by private companies are conducted in a transnational space that states don't really control and obviously the, the global uh, public sphere which is run through social media is one that no single state can control and no single state entity can control and that kind of adds to the, the, uh, the, the effect of uh, hyperconnectedness. Yeah, securitized? securitized means that we live in a world where the threats that we're looking at are not necessarily objectively defined anymore everything is based is defined based on narrative while during the cold war era we would see you know we would know that the soviet union the east uh, the warsaw pact was defined as the tangible other as the the threat against which we had to define our security in the 21st century we don't really have that sort of tangible other um, hence, But still, we have loads of insecurities that emanate from spaces and from areas that we can't properly define. Most of it is based on known or unknown unknowns, which means that we basically define security very subjectively based on stories. So if a government has to tell its people that we have to go to war in country A, B or C, far away, we have to build a story around why this is actually something that we need to engage and why we need to deploy our troops or why we need to deploy other levers of state power to engage that particular risk rather than threat. And most of it is subjectively defined and is based on, th- that's what we call securitization. We securitize an issue and then d- then d- determine that this is the one issue that we need to focus upon.
1: But that was always true, wasn't it? I mean, if you if you go back to, I don't know, days of the British Empire, there was a whole ideology built around that to justify what was going on. Yes, you know, the, the, the advanced world enlightening the rest of the world and all that stuff. That's no different, is it?
0: Of course, you can always make a case that I'm a constructivist. I always think that reality is constructed and it is mostly constructed through through narratives that has always been like that. We've always tried to define subjectively what the threats are uh, against which we need to uh, protect ourselves. But it was kind of clear that, you know, we usually knew the, the, the other was mostly most of the time a state actor. We knew who that state actor was. We knew what capabilities they had. We knew what intent they had. We knew how to potentially counter them. And now in the in the era of uh, in a privatized, globalized world, we have all kinds of state and non-state actors kind of working through networks with plausible deniability where we don't know where the threat is coming from. We don't even know whether there is a threat or not, because threat always kind of implies that there is something very tangible there. But we're dealing with risks uh, and more so than we've ever done. You know, it's some people would call this the neo-medieval uh, sort of world that we that we live in. Where threats come from everywhere, they come from inside. They're coming from private individuals, and in that kind of network-centric world of the twenty-first century, it becomes increasingly difficult to really define a tangible other. I think what we're doing now with Russia is is very much you know goes back to some of the parameters um, that we were that that we experienced during the Cold War. But even there, we will have to you know, build a narrative of why Russia is so bad and we're we're struggling with that in, in public discourse. So the securitization element I think is becoming more and more important. It has always been there, but it's becoming more important because of the absence of a very tangible existential threat.
1: And the fourth word you've got is a rather inelegant one. Mediatized. What do you mean
0: by that? Well mediatization refers to, you know, the the, the overly again the hyper connected public sphere where everything is based on narratives. Everything is in the, in the in the eye of the media particularly when you look at conflict uh, in the 21st century it's more about the it's more about the optics of the conflict rather than what's actually happening on the ground we see that in the war in ukraine as well it's not so much about what's actually happening is there a counteroffensive by the ukrainians or not have they gained ground or not it's more about you know how you how do you present particular content and information and it's it's not no longer whether you actually seize the ground but if you can convince others in that globalized, mediatized environment, that you have seized the ground. So everything is is geared towards this constant 24-7 uh, public media attention. And in that space, media and social media attention, in that space, you have to constantly build your narrative, and you constantly need to present yourselves, yourself. And the, the presentation of what you do is more important than what you do. And that's also true for politics. The, the, the theater of presenting your policy is more important than actually implementing the policy uh, because everything is 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 mediatized everything is immediately brought to the pub to public attention and you don't really have the time to prepare you don't really have the time to kind of ripen the public sphere for what what it is that you want to do you have to come out and immediately come up with a good narrative so the, the mediatized world basically the narrative is more important than what you do
1: this gets us onto the really interesting bit of this, because, I mean, there's an obvious challenge to that. If you take the example you gave of Ukraine, of course, the narrative matters. Ukraine saying it's making advances will help it raise more money and get weapons from the West to further its cause. And, and you know, you can see why it's important. But what's really important is that they take ground, right, is that mm. they that they win the war. Surely you're saying everything is now narratives, but it, but it's not actually. I mean, it's still important yeah that so they win the war for them
0: yes of course i mean the, the, this is what we refer to as the say do gap and that's kind of the fundamental grand strategic vulnerability of any actor in the in the 21st century conflict environment is the say do gap is the gap between what you say you're doing uh, or what you're saying what you've done and what you've actually done and because of the 24/7 media attention you you know there will be scrutiny on what on on your actions and you have to justify them but i would i would counter that by saying we're often operating in a very muddied information environment where it is very difficult to ascertain what really happened. And that is true for even, you know, for even intelligence services to really see through all these, uh, you know, this this mass of, of data and mass of information to actually ascertain what really happened is becoming more and more difficult to really get to the truth and Particularly because the other side, in this case, the Russians, are not really interested, have never really been interested in the truth when it came to Ukraine over the last eight, nine years or so. It was always more about uh, you know, building that particular narrative. And also it's not about convincing everyone. You just need to convince a sizable audience to believe in your narrative. And that in itself can become very disruptive. Because it's no longer about you know, people and I'm writing about this in the book. This is it's not just about, you know, seizing the moral high ground, it's not just about, you know, the the, the 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 narrative is the new flag on the battlefield that needs to be seized but it's also you you know if you don't need to win everyone over you don't need to win the truth really of what's going on but you need to you know particularly the Countries like China or Russia, or, or also the United Arab Emirates, who I, I refer to in, in this book, they're, they're countries who are there to disrupt. They're there to use the information environment to disrupt what's actually happening. And if the disruption element of it means you only need a sizable community who believe your side of the story. And when it comes to Ukraine, it doesn't matter whether Ukraine is seizing territory or not, or whether the Ukraine is the actual victim in this conflict or not. We might not see it in Britain as much yet, but we're seeing it on, on the continent, and we're definitely seeing it. In the United States, where there are sizable communities who don't believe in the truth, they don't believe in what's actually going on, and I shouldn't use the term truth, but they're not believing in the facts on the ground, but they're believing in the narrative. And that that is, they become disruptors, they become, uh, you know, a sizable disruptor of discourse in the public space that will eventually affect uh, policymaking.
1: Right, well, this is what I wanted to get into. I mean, you're saying, it's quite interesting, you just said, I shouldn't say truth, I should say facts. I almost get the impression when you describe the overall arching importance of narratives that you don't think there are facts Uh, and reading the book I did wonder about that sometimes I mean you were sort of saying there's no objective truth Mm. but there is isn't there I mean Ukraine either has or has not taken that village so
0: can you just talk us through those distinctions yes so I think that what it boils down to is facts I think everyone can have an opinion but not everyone can have their own facts in fact it's probably the, the one thing that you could agree on. So we can agree on, did Ukraine take that village or not. But that's not really important because if you want to transport that information to make it a palatable uh, uh, sort of information for, for everyone, for a broader audience, you have to put a spin to it. You, you create a storyline around it. Why is it significant? And as soon as a journalist reports on the story of Ukraine has taken that village, Inevitably, that journalist will have to build a story around it of why it's significant, how they did it, why they did it. And as soon as you start going into that, you're building a narrative, you're building a storyline around it. And you will embed it into a, in a storyline of, you know, Ukraine is the victim, Russia is the aggressor. So, my, my point being is as soon as you go move away from the pure reporting of the fact of what happened, which is probably just a, a single sentence you're building a storyline and that is then becoming the truth. The truth is then becoming the the storyline that builds the truth. Uh, And that is something that is always biased in one way or 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 not. You and and narratives can be built on facts and they can be built on non facts or or on disinformation or misinformation. And that's why I made this distinction in this book in this book. This book is not about disinformation and misinformation only. It's about information as well. It's about how you spin facts to make them palatable. And that's what we do, and that's what every that's what it's an inherently human thing. As soon as we engage in communication, we put a spin on the information that we trade. Whether you're a journalist, you're a policymaker, you, you know me as an academic. You know, even you know, as academics, we're supposed to develop objective truth. But you know, if you write ten thousand words on a particular issue, you'll you know the angles you choose, the the words you choose, the theory and concepts that you use and choose will build a narrative, and thereby you are basically um, shaping the truth. And, and it's no longer objective. And, and hence why I'm saying there is no such thing as objective. If you had to develop a Venn diagram, obviously, there are certain things that we can all agree on as humans. But you know, the more concrete and complex the issue becomes, the smaller that Venn gra- diagram becomes because there's less and less overlap of what we can agree on. So everyone then ends up with their own kind of storyline.
1: Right. So the distinction you're making is between the truth and there's uh, often this phrase, you know, your truth or my truth or their yeah. truth or whatever. So, so that kind of truth and the fact. And you're not denying that facts exist, right?
0: No, absolutely not. No, yeah. facts are facts. The fact is probably the only thing that we can still measure.
1: Yeah. And when you did your reading for this and were you know consulting all the literature that's been that's out there, did anyone go as far as saying there are no facts? There are only versions
0: of the truth. I have read this, uh, but this is a, a very small minority opinion. Because, again, if you if you if if you get into the philosophy of it, and I, I initially did this, and then stepped away from it because it became so metaphysical. If you agree that everything is everything that we see is always somewhat shaped by the eyes that see, um, then obviously even the facts and the you know kind of measuring the facts will be biased. Uh, and mediated by whoever sees those facts. And hence, you could make an argument that nobody will ever see facts in the same way. You will not see the blue of the sky in the same way that I will see uh, the blue of the sky. But, you know, that gets that gets too far removed from the actual problem that, w- that we're discussing here. So, you know, I, I very much left it to one side because I think the, the vast majority of the literature agrees facts are facts and they can be objectively measured.
1: I, I can see where perhaps there's a difference um, between you and I on this in, in that you're saying narratives are incredibly yeah, so important, they're almost all important in constructing yeah, the world we live in and, and what happens. And I would have thought that the facts are more important than you think, I think, from what you're saying. So if you take the vaccine, it would seem to me the most hmm. important thing of all is that if you take it, you, you, you've increased your chances of surviving and, and not getting seriously ill. I mean, that's the most important fact about it. That's the that's the relevant fact. It's a fact, and it's very germane to all of us whereas the narrative around it that either it's a brilliant thing and it's a breakthrough of western science and all the sort of spin and you know it's 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 a conspiracy to make us uh, servants of the government or whatever you know these various stories that people have built around it you know they matter but they don't matter that much certainly not compared to whether you get seriously ill or not or die
0: well yes and no but now in hindsight when we look at the 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 rollout of the vaccine across the world also in this country we we i do realize that and i bought into that narrative as well um as you i need to get vaccinated and i need to have the second shot and i need to have the booster shot and you know th- there was fear fear mongering going on to an extent which i bought into and I, you know, I had to counter some of those people who were saying, "Oh, I'm not going to take the vaccine because I don't believe in it." It's, you know, whatever conspiracy theory people had. But the truth of the matter is that the vaccine, in the end, especially now with all these uh, different, uh, you know, uh, variants that we have, the vaccine is no longer as uh, important as it used to be. And you kind of put this in your veins um, to, to, you know, at, at a time when when you probably didn't necessarily have to. I think it made a difference for the first two or three waves. Uh, and it's good that we all did this. But we, I think what we did there is we only focused on that one fact. We, we didn't, and I'm talking, when I say we, the, the mainstream media or the mainstream discourse in this country, which was also led by the government, uh, completely uh, didn't, you know, didn't really allow anyone to even question it. I think we've created, it created a hysteria or a hype around it that was so. Um, all-encompassing of saying, we have to do it, there's just no way out, this is the only way out of it, that we disregarded a sizable chunk of the population who disagreed with that narrative. The point is, they were wrong, right? I mean,
1: and, you know, it is still needed. If we didn't have it now, the the vaccine, there would be a spread of the disease and more people would start dying again,
0: Right. I'm not sure. About, I mean, I'm not. You know, I'm. 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 not a virologist. I don't know. I don't. We, we don't even know the numbers anymore. And the, that's the whole point of it. You know, at the at the at the early stages, we were measuring day by in day out how many people got infected, how many people died, and that discourse created. You know, was played on our emotions. It created. Uh, you know, a sort of a communal feeling of we need to do something about this. This is a again goes back to securitization. COVID nineteen was so overly securitized into this existential threat that we were all saying, oh, we need to do something about it. I remember the first you know, first lockdown, I was scared to even go in the park and you know, walk past you know, people, even if I had five meters distance because I thought, oh my God, what if, if they breathe out when I breathe in and so on and so forth. So that was, it was completely irrational and it, it was based on a narrative. It was political discourse. It was political communication and political communication is based on narratives. Um, the fact is still is vaccines are good and we- vaccines are working. But the problem is, Who emanated that message? Who were the people who put that message out? And that was, you know, the government, it was scientists, it was the elites. I think the problem that we had is that there was a sizable chunk of the population who didn't trust discourse and they didn't trust the elites and those, you know, whether it's politicians or academics or scientists, it's no longer the message that was the problem. It was, it didn't really matter whether it's fact or not. It's about who's emanating that message. That's part of the narrative. And, And all of that can be manipulated and all of it is being manipulated and has always been manipulated in political discourse. What this book is about is how how this can be manipulated by external powers as a form of further undermining the cohesion and unity of uh, our own population and potentially mobilizing or demobilizing populations to support or not support a particular policy. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the, the great threat of it, because we're always looking at domestic discourse as being a so, some sort of isolated incident. But what we see the Russians doing, for example, is they were trying to ripen that discourse of people who were skeptical about the vaccines, who were skeptical about the covid 19 policy in in western countries and by trying to mobilize them trying to feed them more disinformation or in in, in what's more what's worse is actually more doubtful narratives about whether this actually works or not and thereby creating maybe not in the UK but I've seen it in Germany I've seen it in other European countries where the people were protesting and talking tens of thousands of people who are still mobilized by the way despite the fact that the pandemic is over these people are still mobilizing they mobilized during COVID-19 against the vaccines and against the measures that were taken to fight COVID who are still you know disengaged and uh, alienated by government and alienated by the elites quote unquote and who are now unwilling to kind kind of support any sort of policy they've become anti Ukraine war they became anti um, you know uh, climate change and in, in Germany for example we're talking about uh, 25% of the population that's a sizable chunk of people who are all voting for far right or far left parties who are you know so you're going on rallies every other week to support Putin and uh, and russia and saying you know all of it's again the elites who made all this up Zelensky's part of the same elite elite elitist plot and and the same is true in the united states it's a sizable chunk of people who deny this and they don't necessarily deny the fact but they've bought in a narrative in the spin of countering the fact
1: I agree with all of that and and obviously it's it's super important and it's making a huge difference to our politics. And we'll get into how regimes do this and those sort of issues in just a moment. I just wanna have one more go at this. I think we've pretty much talked it out, but it would seem to me that while you're placing so much emphasis on the importance of the conspiracy theory and the numbers of people who buy into it, if you take the vaccine example, those significant numbers in in West European and, and, and in the US population, who are sceptical about the benefits of the vaccine and refusing to take it, whether it's from Russian manipulation or however they got there. The the fact is that more of them will die than people who take the vaccine. I mean, that's just how it is, right? And, 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 you know, it, it just seems to me we can overemphasise. Anyway, we've said it really, but we can overemphasise the importance of all this other stuff and
0: lose sight of that basic, important, crucial fact for them. But isn't wouldn't you say that over the last, you know, looking at this generation in particular, and I'm I'm seeing it with some of the younger students that are coming in now as well, the narrative is so much more important than the fact. I mean, fact has become, until they die, you know. Yeah. But, but it's, it's the point is that our discourse has moved away from fact so much and are so obsessed with the narrative side of things, the way things are presented, you know, whether on TikTok or Instagram, it's no longer about fact. You know, everything is manipulated anyway. The content that you put up is manipulated. The way you present yourself is manipulated. It's, it's more about the storyline that you're trying to build around yourself. It's no longer who you actually are. Uh, and, and that has an impact on discourse as well. I think fact matters less and less, unfortunately. Okay,
1: well, let's, let's get into um, how you manipulate what people think. Uh, and some of it is playing on sort of features of human behaviour, really, isn't it? Confirmation bias, the role of emotions, the role of uh, societal views. Can you, can, you, can you take us through some of that on how, you, you know, if you were trying to manipulate public opinion, what sort of features of human behaviour would you be looking at?
0: So I, I define three vulnerabilities. One is social psychological, one is infrastructural, and the other one is physical vulnerabilities in the information environment. And that is that kind of defines how information travels. So the, the first one, the social, the social psychological one, is probably the most important one, is trying to understand your audience and trying to understand where there are potential gaps in your audience or where there are potential grievances in the audience that you're trying to influence. And it's it's these kind of gaps and grievances that you can exploit to advance your your own narratives, and social psychology is is immensely important in all of that. You know, you you mentioned already some of the cognitive biases there, but there are obviously emotional biases as well: fear, anger. But fear, in particular, is a very very powerful tool. Great example of which has been very well researched in social psychology is is the the run up to the Iraq war in 2003 and the way that fear in america was exploited to to kind of again do away with facts and ignore facts and even create facts in order to go to war in iraq based on the post 9-11 fear of the terrorists everywhere. And it has allowed us, including in the UK, I mean, the the, the counterterrorism laws that came into effect in the UK post 9-11 have you know, had immense negative impacts on particularly Muslim communities in this country. And, and we, we, we got rid of civil liberties and some of the values that we, that we cherished in this country because of the fear of the terrorists everywhere. And, and so fear is a very powerful tool that you can use to kind of plug narratives that otherwise people might not uh, consider to be palatable or that they would otherwise be willing to support. And, and then obviously confirmation biases uh, are problematic. These are all, you know, these are all traits, heuristics, uh, is, 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 you know, heuristic shortcuts. The way that our human brain works is through heuristic shortcuts, right? Our human brain always takes the road of least resistance or the, the route of least resistance. We, we want to get to, we want to make decisions as quickly as possible and thereby we ignore Uh, Certain variables and kind of uh, use uh, existing blueprints for for decision making that are based on heuristic shortcuts. And these heuristic shortcuts, again, are being shaped by social psychological biases. And some of it is conscious, some of it is subconscious. And we all have it. We always have it. Nothing, nothing about it is new. What is problematic is if you put the social psychological biases and these vulnerabilities together with the infrastructural vulnerabilities that we have today, and that is referring to the information environment and how it is being constructed, what are the channels and the nodes and the connections that we use to transport information in the 21st century and social media is probably the most important part of it, but it's also the media environment. The media environment has very much diversified over the last 30, 40 years with a lot of new channels coming up, and then you had this impact of digital media which completely turned everything upside down. If, if you bring together the social psychological vulnerabilities with infrastructural vulnerabilities, you, you have the, the, the worst of all worlds because the way that social media is designed, the way that the digital media environment is designed is catering towards our uh, cognitive biases, emotional biases, as well as our difference in in worldviews, and it's 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 the algorithms which are the new mediators, if you will, because we're always saying we got rid of the old gatekeepers of truth, which used to be the media, and and now the new gatekeepers actually that came in are far worse because they're they're algorithms, right? Oftentimes with AI capabilities that are exposing us to the sort of information that we already want to hear, and they're they're based on the pre. Uh, on our, our preconceptions that we have already, and they just confirm all our biases that we have. And and that it, together provides us with various entry points to micro-target individuals. So what if you wanted to a- address and influence an audience, you just have to tap into a particular echo chamber. You need to understand the echo chamber, you need to understand what their their grievances are, you need to understand what their biases are. And you need to find a good narrative that addresses, the, the, that provides a solution to their grievance, but also uh, does that using the cognitive, emotional biases that this audience particularly has. And you kind of wrap a fact in a narrative that is more palatable to that particular audience. And that's how you start. But obviously, information operations are never linear they they you know you're doing a lot of different activities at the same time it's it, and that's what it what is so fundamentally different from a, any other sort of operation that we conduct states usually it, throughout history have done this through hierarchical institutions you know the military is a hierarchical institution information operations work as sort of horizontal operations they're not based on hierarchies you have a lot of different nodes and a lot of different activities happening at the same time And what you're looking for, looking at, is the cumulative effect of all of this that will then be the effect in the information environment. It's not the individual operation. We always think like, oh, we have this audience now. We have this one narrative that we inject in that audience, in that echo chamber, and that will now do the trick. You do loads of different injections at the same time, hoping that this will uh, eventually generate the sort of effect that you're looking for.
1: Just listening to you, it just occurred to me that... You know you're talking about the globalization of this as I mean, uh, you know, amongst many other things, but is it rather like a cult in that you know a cult is a very sort of discreet community where people are persuaded of a version of the world and are prepared to actually to take it to their deaths, you know mm. uh, they're prepared to die for it. and it's almost as if that method of controlling other people's thinking because of technology it is no longer just possible in a group of 100 or 1000 or whatever a cult might have but is is becoming global
0: i think that's a, a a nice a, a, a metaphor here that that you could use it is about manipulation obviously at the end of the day and the idea about this is not an old it is not a new one it's quite old 100 years ago 1923 the kgb has looked into how can we control organizations how can we control societies how can we control networks and uh, information operations, was psychological operations, were seen as one element of doing that, uh, a very important one. What, what, we've, what we see is that over the last hundred years, particularly the Russians during the Cold War, have tried so many different ways of changing and mobilizing, demobilizing public spheres and civil societies overseas, to uh, you know, support their side of the story or disrupt policymaking in the West, but it never really worked well. It, it was never really successful, just because. Uh, you know during most of the 20th century, the information environments were fairly uh, constrained they were contained was very difficult to get access to was very difficult to also bypass the the gatekeepers that did exist, which were the media companies but in the twenty first century because of hyperconnectivity, there are no gatekeepers anymore. You can bypass that you can from Moscow or from St Petersburg directly influence a small town community in middle America, for example, and loads of evidence for that exists for the 2016-2020 US presidential elections, where we had people protesting in middle America in a small town who were entirely mobilized through bots and trolls that were paid for or were working in Saint Petersburg uh, and paid in rubles. You had, you know, and these people, people became violent. They went out on the on the street. They started to protest. Um, they clashed with law enforcement. So you, what you, what you ended up. This is kind of what the the Russians dreamed of 100 years ago, the Soviets dreamed of, is that that you remotely kind of inject a particular way of thinking to first change their attitude, but then later also change their behavior over time, uh, and then potentially even generating a violent effect. And that is now possible. And we've seen there's a lot of evidence for that. Also, the UAE have done the same thing across the Arab world. They have, you know, created pretexts for counter-counter revolutions injecting particular grievances in societies and narratives to mobilize over time because obviously that takes a lot of time it's not something that you do today and you have the effect tomorrow it it takes ripening for months sometimes years and i would i would go as far as say that what happened on the 6th of january 2021 when you had Trump supporters trying to storm the capital or storming the capital, that was an effect of the sort of ripening and, and, and injection of different violent narratives in the U.S. information environment by Russians that, ha- that made this possible. This wouldn't have been possible without the, the ripening that's been going on for now more than eight years in, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, information environment by Russians. What's the difference
1: between Russia doing that in 2016, let's say, affecting US public opinion to revolt against itself, if you like, yeah. and what America did in the 50s and 60s using Hollywood to build a global admiration of America? Is it, is it the same thing, just, you know, technology's changed how effective it is and so on?
0: Uh, I mean, are there parallels there? I'm making a distinction here between strategic communication, which is very defensive, where you're trying to talk yourself up where you know every state does that, and you know it's it, lobbying and p r for a government or for a particular state is nothing new if you're trying to you know the whole great campaign that was i think was very successful to kind of promote the u k overseas these things happen um and and these things have always happened, and they're not the same thing at all because you're not trying to undermine the integrity of Uh, the information environment and then also the relationship between society and state because it's not offensive it's not weaponized there's probably only one instance in, in in when the west has actually done something like this fairly successfully and i think that is probably operation ajax in 1956 that i also mentioned in the book where mi6 and CIA ripened public discourse in iran Against a, a freely elected president who we considered at the time being countering UK, US interests, and then kind of creating mobilization on the streets that then later on the, the government or the, the, the military could exploit to reimpose the authoritarian rule by the Sharp. And, you know, it used the media outlets, it used public, you know, civil civil societal outlets very successfully, but it's one of the few cases where it actually worked and where where it was successful. The other case study that I'm looking at is the way that the, the Soviets have used the peace movement in Europe to mobilize people against the positioning of nuclear weapons in western europe against the soviet union that was a this movement was organic but that movement was fed with disinformation and narratives by russian agents to kind of make and build a particularly strong movement and galvanize that movement to make it so powerful that governments had to respond to it and eventually decided against positioning these missiles in uh, in in Western Europe, these are probably two case studies that I can think of, which were very very successful, had an impact on p- policy discourse and on policy making later on.
1: Well, I've often wondered about this. If if um, Putin is sending out messages, organizing campaigns to undermine, let's say, the twenty sixteen election, why aren't Western governments doing the same back to him? I mean, that's normally how it works, right? And and mm. you know you you do it back, and it's a deterrent, and and then he'll be nervous about his elections.
0: Deterrence doesn't really work in this information environment uh, or in the cyberspace, for that matter. But if you did ask Putin about this, he would say, you know, we didn't start this. His point of view is obviously for any authoritarian, any sort of information and free information is inherently subversive. And he would say that the support that we provided to the color revolutions in Eastern Europe were a form of subversion and information and psychological operations directed against the Kremlin. So he would always say, you started it, we're just getting better at it. I, I would also say, obviously, we're not freely talking about it, but there are capabilities that the US and the UK have that we are deploying overseas, but we're not talking about it um, in, in, in a more targeted manner because it is it is seen as being semi-legal. It's not illegal, obviously, uh, but it's also a lot more difficult to do in a not-free information environment because if you ask a, a Russian officer about the information environment and any sort of outlet or agent that could become an an agent of Western narratives in Russia is immediately obviously uh, uh, incarcerated and and taken away as an enemy of the state. So it is a lot more difficult to create these sort of organic uh, movements because public discourse isn't free and there is no civil society or at least a a very small, very contained civil society. So it is a vulnerability that mostly applies to liberal democracies and liberal civil societies. What are Western governments doing that they're not talking about? Well, I mean, the the entire support for Ukrainian information operations and psyops um, has been provided by the US and the UK. Um, I think that the fact that Zelensky is so successful in you know defending his side of the story and 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 also you know putting out his side his narratives on on you know where Ukraine is going, that that is an entire infrastructure and a narrative that was built up with the support from the West. So you know in the Ukraine war we we're providing all the support that we can in that space as well to to the ukrainians we've done similar operations in in the balkans to kind of then create sort of genuine sort of organic movements that counter russian operations uh, and russian information operations by just creating resilience and i think that's probably the the solution that we're that we're that we're trying to use by creating information and psychological resilience within communities that we think are exposed or vulnerable to russian or Emirati, or Chinese information uh, operations. But it's it's easier said than done, because building resilience against this is something that will take, again, years and years, it takes education, it has to start from an early age. And I think we have to start with school children, really, to become more uh, savvy and more wary of the information environment and how information can be manipulated.
1: Well, it seems to me that China may have found another way to do it, not by educating young people about the sort of slipperiness of information, but by controlling the internet, you know, and as I understand it, in each place of employment in China, there's a manager who is responsible for all the social media messaging of the people under him. And if he doesn't get something subversive offline within, I think it's a few hours, you know, he faces penalties. Mm. Uh, And so it's an astonishing system uh, for controlling what many in the West Still think is uncontrollable, but actually it is controllable, and the China are controlling it, and it's a great defence for them. Do you think?
0: Yes. So this, in, in chapter four, I'm, I'm talking about how the authoritarians learned from the events of the Arab Spring in particular, and here the UAE is a very good case study because they've taken on Russian lessons and Chinese lessons in how to create a civil society. Where there is social media, where there isn't a firewall that blocks the internet off in the same way that we have it in North Korea. But it's creating a resilience by basically criminalizing any sort of information that the regime deems as uh, being counter, uh, running counter to their own sort of narrative. They allow discourse but they, the discourse is is managed by trolls and bots you know huge uh, troll farms uh, of people who work for the government uh, in you know in, in china we call them the the sort of the 50 cents they're being paid for for by countering any sort of comment that is made that is remotely critical of the ccp uh countering that and, and saying you know giving a counter argument to that what we see in saudi arabia and the uae is what they've done there is they have employed so much uh, because penetration of social media is so wide in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they couldn't just switch it off. So what they do is they just hire people, trolls, but also have now more and more bots that are AI generated who are engaging in fake discourse. And so what they do is they promote hashtags that are pro-government. So whenever there is a hashtag coming out that might be slightly critical of the government, they come and create the fake uh, hashtag manipulating the algorithm and, and basically bombarding what is a fairly small organic discourse with a fake discourse that will then trump the, the organic discourse and then thereby sightlining any sort of discourse. So it, and, and then obviously going after people and then they will use social media to track down the people who posted this. And they will then be taken away. So there's also that deterrent element of that. I think this is probably, and that's why I'm saying liberation technology has been uh, reverse engineered to becoming some sort of dictatorship 2.0, uh, which is, is working very effectively. China is, is really doing it very, very well. But obviously, that's not the sort of resilience that we're after in the, in, in the liberal world. Yes, well, let's talk about that bit
1: of it because uh, I've, I've worked for many years for the BBC and their solution is to start a fact-checking department. I think I read the other day maybe something called BBC Verify or something like that. So, so they're trying to you know, put out there on their platforms analysis of what is true and what isn't or what are facts oh. and what aren't, to use your language. Uh, it seems to me it's almost swimming against an impossible tide. I mean, do you, th- do you think that's an effective
0: response? No. Uh, it, it's one. So first of all, I mean, any response has to be uh, multi-stakeholder and has to involve a lot of different measures being being taken at the same time. There's not one single silver bullet against it. And we also need to learn to live with it. We can't. We will never get rid of it. It's part of our information environment. It's part of our discourse. So hence, resilience is more about sustaining this without critically failing. Research has shown that fact checking doesn't really work. It hasn't really have. It doesn't have a considerable impact on whether. Uh, information are being absorbed or not, particularly when we when we're in the in the narrative space. Most people don't have the time; they're not really interested in whether something is true or not. It's whether it appeals, and then also you know again, it's this information is fairly easy to to flag up. But when we're going into the weaponized narrative space, I'll give you an example of, 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 of the UAE. I mean, what the UAE have done is they have put a spin on the story of saying that any sort of Islamist eventually will become a terrorist. That is something that is a fairly palatable uh, sort of narrative in the Western world, in particular, post 9-11. And they've used that. It's, it's, not, a dis, it's, not, a, it's not wrong. I mean, the the narrative is wrong, but the fact that Islamists have conducted terrorist operations and that all terrorists were Islamists meant that there is some truth to that. It's the spin of it. And the spin was verified by academics, by think tanks that they financed. It was, uh, you know, it, it, it was promoted by lobbyists and it has created the idea that Islamism is a gateway drug to terrorism. And based on that we've we've seen legislation being passed in the US legislation being passed in the UK against the Muslim Brotherhood and other political Islamist groups. You know, fact checking wouldn't wouldn't ha- wouldn't work here because it's it's a, it's a spin on a particular fact. So what you need to do is you need to kind of create critical thinking. You need to you need to have a counter narrative unfortunately to balance that particular narrative and that counter narrative then needs to be as palatable as the original narrative. And to make it palatable, again, you need to put a spin on it. So pure facts by just flagging things up and saying this is disinformation, that doesn't work on its own. It can work when you, ha- when we're talking about hard disinformation, it does work uh, in terms of flagging it up, but it does still doesn't stop it from traveling. So on Facebook, when they started putting flags up of saying this is disinformation or this is contested information, it had no impact on how freely this information actually travels. So I'm skeptical Skeptical about this. What has to happen is we need to create something that is bringing together all the stakeholders in the information environment to counter this and create some sort of modus operandi of how we want to deal with it. And that means social media companies. It means actors from, activists from civil society. It means the media. Uh, it means obviously government as well. Everyone who's has a stake in the information environment to come together and decide co- based on consensus on what we deem to be good or bad information which is highly problematic in a liberal state and a liberal civil society but we need to do it because it's a race to the bottom and I th- I, we've just seen it over the last 10 years the polarization in our discourse in the information environment has become so toxic that i think it could eventually lead to paralysis policy paralysis as well, because it translates into voting behavior it translates on pressure on politicians and MPs and so we, we need to do something about it. nobody's really a- addressing it and then education is very important you need to young children need to start from an early age to become more media and communication savvy, understanding how media works and you know I think social media should be something that should be banned. For, for for youngsters under the age of 16 in the same way that we don't allow people to drink alcohol when they're young it's a it's a drug it's addictive it, highly highly manipulative
1: it's, it's very interesting you say that because I've often wondered whether the beginning of media education in, in schools which started you know 20 30 years ago where school children were shown in in UK and probably in the US was shown newspaper articles and basically persuaded quite rightly to to wonder why that newspaper was saying it and to to doubt you know to to to, to be skeptical mm. uh, about the motives of the people writing and to doubt their facts and so on uh, which of course was yeah a perfectly sensible thing to to teach but i wonder i often wonder whether that began this process of you know real facts becoming contested and taking us on the the, the route, you know, which obviously social media and all the rest of it have played a role, but whether that was part of it.
0: Yes. So what we see is the 1970s, 1980s, what started the polarisation of the information environment was the liberalisation of the conventional media, the move away from you know the BBC being the, the only sort of TV channel in the UK, then having private television with their own private networks and their private news channels, um, that obviously happened in America first. We've seen the same happening with the uh, with the with the printing press uh, or uh, printing me, print media that became increasingly diversified, and obviously the UK always had a, a, a very polarising uh, print media environment. Uh, and I think that was exacerbated in the since the 1980s and the 1990s, where things could be said that were that 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 could never have been said in the 50s and 60s or even before, and because they're just factually not true. And it was always about selling. It became increasingly privatized, commercialized, and I think that was a huge problem for that started that polarization that we're seeing today. Social media brings to the next level.
1: Yeah, but I, I was sort of saying something slightly different, which is whether those media classes that people were given, let's say, in the 70s, equipped them to doubt facts but mm. did not equip them mm. to do the next thing and say, right, well, this is actually what's true. You know, <laughs> I thought, you know it, didn't, it didn't equip them to, to establish the truth. It just uh, equipped them to doubt what they were being
0: told, which is quite corrosive. You, you're right about that as well. But it, it, it goes hand-in-hand hand with, with what I said before, is that if... If we become increasingly skeptical because of the behavior that we've seen from the media and from journalists of what they write about and we become increasingly skeptical about it, it has fueled social media and it has increased the uh, skepticism and alienation among the wider public about the media and about who we should trust and basically and that's the the infocalypse that we're that we're confronted with so apart from those people who are engaging and who love to be polarized we have an increasingly increasing number of people who become so alienated that they don't consume media at all like information they don't care about the news anymore at all whether on social media or conventional media because they're just saying i can't I, it, it will be impossible for me to really understand what is the truth here so i might as well not even try
1: just a final thought on this I- You know, When you read 1984 by George Orwell, it seems that he took very early on, he was just a brilliant man, and he spotted so quickly the nature of totalitarianism and where it might lead. I'm waiting for someone to do that novel now about this current era we're living in, where, as you say, narratives are incredibly important and all this information is so uncertain. I, I just wonder whether in your writing about it you've sort of tried to extrapolate where this in a, you know, in a very extreme version of what we're beginning to experience now, where it leads and what sort of society we might end up in in, I don't know, twenty eighty
0: four. Yeah, that, I, I did. I did think that about this a lot, and it, you know, very visionary, obviously nineteen eighty four. Uh, and unfortunately, most of what was written about in one shape or form, obviously not in the same digital environment that we have now, has come to effect. I'm very pessimistic of where we're going with this. Um, I'm pessimistic particularly for liberal democracies because our entire political apparatus is built around the fact of having being able to speak truth to power. For that, you need to have the ability to, to, to come to a collective truth. And so I think the erosion and corrosion that is happening now is becoming increasingly problematic. What gives me a little bit of hope is that the new generation, millennials and particularly Generation Z, are a lot more skeptical about information, but that could lead to what you're saying, skeptical about facts as well. But at least they're not as gullible. I think what we see in terms of hard disinformation, conspiracy theories, most of the engagement comes from older generations, particularly ba- the baby boomer generation, who have, you know, who don't have that social media literacy. So there's a bit of hope that, that skepticism will not necessarily lead to mobilization, polarization uh, at any given juncture. But I fear that government and state, particularly in terms of sustaining, uh, with the purpose of sustaining liberal civil society and, and liberal the liberal character of our states, that we will see more, more government or state institutions meddling in that space domestically just for the sake of keeping the peace. America is always 10 years ahead of where Europe is, or maybe even more. And I think what's happening in America is very, very worrisome. There is no ability anymore for any party to reach a consensus, and that is something that translates not just into uh, into policymaking, but even on the streets, people, you know, it, it completely disrupts the fabric that keeps the society together. So I'm very skeptical about this, and it, it comes at a time when liberal states anyway are struggling. To provide public goods to to people effectively. So there's a lot of things coming together and that creates a grievances that can be exploited. So I'm quite pessimistic actually.
1: One last thought in a previous interview about QAnon on this series, the author of a book on, on QAnon made the point that if you want to dissuade a QAnoner of the truth of their QAnon beliefs, the, the way to do it is to persuade them that they're, they're the victim of a conspiracy theory by the people who run QAnon. Yes. You know, and and yeah, you know, that, that is, I guess, one weapon against
0: this. Again, yeah, it comes back to the counter narrative. Unfortunately, some of the counter narratives we need to develop to defend ourselves will have to use the same mechanics as the conspiracies theory-based narratives that are that were used in the first place, and that is very problematic. Because how do you these how do you create how do you ensure that these people down the line will actually become receptive again to normal facts and normal narratives?
1: I'm off to work on Twenty Eighty Four. <laughs>
0: yeah Thanks. For, good point
1: thanks very much andreas creek absolutely fascinating conversation and uh you know the themes you're talking about are so important and so relevant so we're very grateful to you
0: thank you very much for having me